Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Good Faith Idea Exchange. For today's episode, I am back with Reverend Dr. Jeremy Hall, and today we are talking more Christian ethics and the spread of the church and also the role of the church in today's society. So I'm not going to waste much time here. Let's just jump right into it. Just talking about how the Bible functions. So when Chronicles goes to tell the story of Solomon, it highlights that he breaks all of the rules that Moses gave for a king. And um, this, there's this incredible moment. There's this incredible moment where they're giving a list of his like accomplishments, but they're all evil accomplishments. So the rules are don't go back to Egypt. Don't take many wives. Don't worship other gods. Don't become insanely rich. So if you are writing a book to make yourself look good, if you are writing the Bible and you are one of the kings of God's chosen people, you want to make sure you tell the good parts. And so there's this section in Chronicles where it says, he married a lot of foreign women. They introduced foreign gods to his worship, and he brought them to the people. He went back to Egypt to buy chariots, which he sold to this nation, and he bought medals from this nation and sold them to that nation and bought spears over here and sold them to those guys. He's an arms dealer. And it tells us that he builds the temple to the Lord with slave labor. And it says his wealth was so great that his income was 666 tons of gold a year. Do you think Solomon actually made 666 tons of gold? Probably not. Probably not. But that number, that that number grabbed you by the collar, right? That number meant something. It's a very Jewish way of saying something has gone very wrong here. Right. So the Bible isn't as interested in facts as it is truth. And you think about some of the other places in scripture that have become sort of political or culture war footballs. Like let's jump all the way to begin the beginning. Let's go to Genesis, Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, tell completely different stories about the creation. Genesis chapter one is in the beginning. God created the ants, the seven days, uh, six days of work and a seventh day of rest. Chapter two, it starts over. (laughs) It goes back to nothing and God creates everything, not in an order, ordered fashion. And that's where we get um, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter one, humans are created along with the animals. And there's a bunch of them. In chapter two, it's a single this person and this person. Chapter two is older. Chapter two is probably the ancient mythic story that was brought through the oral transmission of the Hebraic people. Now, when I say myth, don't think I use that word in school more than I do in church. Cause it sounds like I'm saying fairy tale. A okay. myth is a story that tells the listener why the world is the way it is. So Genesis chapter two, if it's really important to you that the, that literally happened, I'm there's no reason for me to try to take that from you, but it is mythic in that it tells you why is childbirth dangerous? Genesis chapter three. Why are people, why, why do people get married? Genesis chapter two. Why do we eat animals? Genesis chapter two. Why do people die? Genesis chapter three. Like there's a story that's explaining how the cosmos works. Genesis chapter one is hip hop. It is resistance poetry. Go ahead. Well, so, so Jeremy, um, like just real quick to to go back one um like kind of one 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 frame here when you began 
um, you know, because we're kind of coming back to this. When you began, um, you know, kind of telling me about the Bible and how it works, your your take on it was so interesting. I just kind of wanted to, I just kind of wanted you to mention it one more time so that we have it in in, in this in this clip as well. You know, because you kind of you kind of called it, you know, stories. A library. Yeah, like like yeah, a, a library of basically from home, homeless men and kings and how they intersect. Could you maybe mention a little bit of that one more time? Yeah, the Bible took thousands of years to come together. We didn't as a kid, I had this vision, this idea, this imagination of like a British explorer in a pith hat and cargo shorts finding it in the jungle somewhere and being like, the word of the Lord and changing everything. And we no, it was never done that way. It took hundreds of years after Jesus for us as the church to agree on what the Bible is. It took the, the people that the old Testament, the Hebrew Bible took thousands of years to come together at the time of Jesus. They didn't agree on what was and wasn't the Bible. It's incredible. And there's incredible diversity in the text. It's written by dozens of authors across thousands of years on at least three continents, written in at least, well, let's see, Africa, Asia, Europe, the Middle East. Okay, well, that's four continents in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, parts of Daniel are in Aramaic, and by people that are like Solomon, a arms-dealing kingdom building emperor who's controlling that if you think about where Israel is on a map it connects Europe, Asia and Africa they all touch in Israel Palestine so it's an incredibly important and valuable piece of land he's a big deal and he's writing stuff that goes in the bible but some of his critics are homeless prophets mm. like the diversity of who gets to speak into this is tremendous and they don't all have the same perspective on everything, but they're all doing their best to honestly share with their reader what they have experienced and what they have encountered. Because all of them have, they've bumped up against base reality. The authors of the Bible have had some sort of encounter and they have to talk about it. But for so many of them, words fail. It's, it's out beyond what language can do. And so we get mystery. We're dealing with mystery. And when two people talk about mystery, they can sound like they're in contradiction. But my thesis is that they are in conversation and that the Bible is okay with that. The Bible is aware of itself. People who wrote the Bible usually didn't know they were writing the Bible and were holding things. They were holding other documents that they thought of as Bible. Right. It's incredible. It know, The Bible knows what it's doing. And also, here's something that you're not allowed to say in a lot of American churches. The authors have agendas. The people writing these books and the people after the authors who are editing these books as they put them together, they have agendas. There's a reason for what they're doing. Mm. Now, a lot of folks hear that and think that that's sinister. That I'm saying that the authors are trying to lie to you or control you or manipulate you. No, they just like I said earlier, they're very they're more concerned with truth than with facts. So when they put things together, they do it intentionally to communicate something. I see. And um, well, 
so so taking taking a step further actually one step away from the bible and one step toward ethics um you know i think we've all heard um you know in different places from different people what it means to truly be christian from an ethical standpoint yes you know some of these things may be accurate and you know some maybe not um you know can you tell me a little bit about christian ethics and have these changed in our contemporary world? Ah, great question. I love the way you put that together. So real quick, baseline, what is ethics? So it's important to be able to differentiate ethics and morality from each other. They're not the same thing. Uh, morality is how we've sort of agreed what is good and how to live in the world and in community. Ethics is the field that studies, critiques, and makes recommendations about morality. So ethics is the work of asking, why do we think this is right? Is it right? And what should we be doing? And why? And it's multidisciplinary. It pulls on history, philosophy, theology, language, biblical studies, especially in Christian ethics. That's obviously important. But it's, it pulls everything together to trying to ask deep questions about the world and how to engage with it. In Christian ethics, we sometimes talk about as lived theology or theology in public life. You could also say like, sec if you were talking about secular ethics, you could say it's lived out philosophy. How do you live what you say you believe? Mm. Okay. So Christians across time and space, because we've inhabited most uh, different places on the earth for uh, 2000 and some years and Christians around the globe, across time, are trying to faithfully follow Jesus. But they do it in different ways uh, because of situations and background and understanding and even language. The language you speak affects the way you see the world and understand and process language. So different people from different places on the globe are going to read, receive, and think and feel the scriptures differently kind of based on their culture and um, the circumstances of their environments, that sort of thing? Yes. And so the story of Christian ethics has, you could almost see an hourglass shape, that it starts out diverse because the church spreads fast. Uh, Jesus does his ministry. It's somewhere between one and three years that Jesus is on the earth doing stuff. Then Jesus leaves the church alone and says, you guys can handle this. Go change the world. And the church goes to Asia and Africa and Europe. And in those places, different versions of how to be a Christian evolve out of their experience and their following of the Holy Spirit. So it starts mm. out really diverse, but then through sort of consolidation of power in Rome and European colonialism, it gets very small. Christian ethics became a continental discipline. So Christians in sub-Saharan Africa and North Asia and Western Europe are all being taught the same thing and thinking the same thing. And it wasn't until that colonial system breaks down that we start to see the, uh, the technical term, oh, what is it? Subaltern. Subaltern traditions start to re-emerge. Southern Hemisphere, Eastern Hemisphere, they get their voices back. Communities of color get their voices back. Communities that had been oppressed or colonized 
start to get their identity back, and that identity connects with Jesus differently. Being Indian and trying to follow Jesus is very different than being British and trying to follow Jesus. Being Dutch and being South African are very different experiences, and they've had the same structure imposed on them. And when that started to crack, the the beauty of the diversity of the church starts to reemerge. And we are blessed to live in the product of that. In, in this postmodern moment, we have so much available to us of so many people trying their very best. They're faithful Christians that disagree with each other all over the world, trying to follow Jesus. And that's what Christian ethics comes down to. How do we follow Jesus in our context? Okay. That is very interesting. That is, um, yeah, pretty much everything that you've said so far is, um, it, you know, it, it makes sense. And it is a perspective that, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd like to think I'm, you know, I mean, I am a Christian as well, but I'd like to think I'm very open-minded and it's something that, it, you know, it's a perspective that I have, you know, not even really heard, you know, heard much of, but it, um, this is very, very interesting. Um, uh, so also Jeremy, um, I feel like in the lives of so many of us today, you know, around the world, I feel like we're suffering from very complex issues that, you know, have yes. even more, uh, come to the forefront recently. Um, you know, mental health, um, being one, especially important, mm-hmm. um, mental, physical, emotional, even sexual abuse in and out of households, poverty, homelessness. You know, so many more people out there are bouncing from couch to couch, uh, one step away from homelessness themselves. Um, you know, how do you feel that Christianity and the Bible tie into these modern issues? Yeah, so the Bible, the Bible maintains its relevancy. This is the 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 thesis of the book that I just released in February. Um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to. The Bible is it stays relevant because every time we come to it, we read it again. If we if we have the courage to allow ourselves to, when we read it again, we read it through our current moment. And the Bible is big enough to handle that, and it's broad enough and diverse enough that there's nothing that it doesn't touch, or nothing that we can't draw out of it. You mentioned a bunch of different social issues, there are Christian perspectives from Scripture on all of those, on homelessness, on illness, on sickness, on poverty, on abuse. It's There is something to be drawn out of the book. That is a very, I mean, honestly, that's a very beautiful way of, of putting it. Um, but it's hard, Tyrone. So being an American Christian means two things at the same time as far as education. One, you have incredible access. No one, no human has ever had the kind of access to philosophy and theology and ethics and Bible and education like we do. No one's ever had it. Exactly. But also, we don't use it. Because in the American church, most of the largest and loudest voices all come from the same camp. And if you disagree with them, well, you're disagreeing with the expert or the celebrity or the pastor or whatever, and you're not allowed to do that. 
which has never been a part of the tradition. That is interesting. Faith has never been about. Go ahead. No, I I don't mean to cut you off or anything. I'm I'm sorry. I, um, I, you know, I do find it interesting that, you know, sometimes it feels like in today's world, everywhere, um, even in religion, sometimes it feels like there's this giant entity formed. Like, you, you know, you look around our world today in our business world, you look at the media, you look at the internet, you know, and even in, even in religion, it's like there are giant entities formed that kind of have control over something. And, you know, unfortunately for so many of us, I think we tend to feel like if we dis- if we would dare to disagree or possibly see things different, that we're going to be seen different or, or hit with a label or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, what have you. And yeah, um, we've turned the beauty of the church into an institution. And when you do that, you have to protect it. But you, you mentioned sexual assault and sexual abuse. It's come out recently that one of the subgroups inside of the big tent of my tradition, I am a Baptist. I am not a Southern Baptist. I'm just a Baptist who lives in the South. The Southern Baptists have, there's been a recent scandal Hundreds of ministers that they knew were committing sexual abuse in their churches, that they shuffled around, that they paid off accusers, that they they did whatever they could to protect the institution and protect those ministers. Because we don't want to hurt their witness and we don't want to hurt the witness of the church. And we they were protecting the institution instead of protecting the people. And they are paying for it now. Um, but we do that. And our answers get wrapped up into it. So what grandma said in Sunday school becomes sacred because grandma said it. That's a big deal. That's a real thing. I treasure the perspectives that were given to me by my well-intentioned and sometimes incorrect grandparents and people of faith that nurtured me. But also the institutions frequently have their solidified answers. They build codes. They build creeds. They build systematic theologies that have all the answers set out. And if you start pulling bricks out of that wall that we've built around our institution to protect it, it's going to collapse. And no one wants to be the guy that knocked over the wall that was protecting the church. We're back to that levees imagery. If you let that levee fall, who knows what the floodwaters are going to do to the church. I think it might baptize it. Um, But will it be baptized or will it be washed away and destroyed? All right, so this concludes part two of my three-parter with Reverend Dr. Jeremy Hall. I hope you guys enjoyed it and got something out of it. Stay tuned for next week's episode because there's going to be an all-new episode just like this one, um, the conclusion of the three-parter. Um, it's going to be every bit as long as this one was and every bit as interesting of a conversation as this one was. Um, as always, if you like the podcast and want to hear more of it, feel free to like this podcast, feel free to follow, subscribe, um, feel free to give it a rating on Apple podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen and just give it, um, 
you know, an honest rating, whatever you think it deserves. Anyway, that's pretty much it for me. So um, have a great day, everyone.